Hi, I'm Tammy Rodman. I'm Reynolds Chapman. And I'm Keith Daniel. Welcome to Who Is My Neighbor, a podcast about what it looks like to love your neighbor. Every city has a story, and our wonderful city of Durham, North Carolina has woven our stories together. This podcast is an invitation to join us as we journey through Durham's history of pain and hope and discover what God is speaking to us in this moment. Come with us as we listen to the voices of the Samaritans. In this first season, we are asking a question to respond to our present moment. Who is my neighbor amid a pandemic and a history of racial injustice? On today's episode, we will hear from Reverend Dr. Willie Jennings, Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale Divinity School. The audio is from a Durham Cares webinar event where we partnered with Mount Level Missionary Baptist Church to host Dr. Jennings to speak to the present moment. Dr. Jennings is very familiar with Durham as he lived here for a number of years while teaching at Duke Divinity School. And his talk speaks profoundly to the question, who is my neighbor? Since we've had this conversation, his voice has continued to reverberate throughout our city in conversations about how the church can face the racism of its past and reimagine what discipleship looks like. Personally, I'm deeply grateful for Dr. Jennings. He was a professor of mine when I was in divinity school, and he continues to shape how I understand race, place, and discipleship. Many thanks to Mount Level and Dr. Jennings for making this talk happen. We hope you enjoy it. And we will be back next week with new guests and conversations. And what I'd like to do this morning in our time is talk about three things. Uh, just spend a little time first talking about the current moment we are in and what it means, this, this current racial moment, this current pandemic moment. Then secondly, I'm going to turn to how we have arrived at this racial moment. How have we gotten here? And then thirdly, just to offer a few suggestions where I hope uh, we could turn our attention and our energy in the coming months and even the coming years. So talk first to talk about the current moment, then second to kind of give a bit of the history of how we've arrived at this current racial moment, and then third to offer a few suggestions on where we might want to direct our attention and energy. And those of you who know me, you already have a sense of where I'm, I'm going to go, but it's good that we are, um, that we are uh, thinking about this together at this moment. And we will have plenty of time for, for questions and for conversation. And so please feel free to, to really talk about what you wanna uh, talk about and have us talk about. So, I have been trying for many years to discern the contours of discipleship, of Christian discipleship on the ground, on the ground. And it has been the absence of the ground in the way so many Christians have described and performed their discipleship that has been a driving frustration for me. The Christianity we all inhabit, sisters and brothers, in this Western world is comfortably nestled between two overarching problems, two overarching problems. On the one side, we have the commodification of everything built inside the privatization of land and place, built inside the privatization of land and place. And on the other side is the racial condition, racial reasoning, and the stubborn power, I do mean stubborn, the stubborn power of white supremacy. Yet so many Christians and non-Christians who see these problems still have not yet reckoned with the ground, with the dirt. It all comes back to the dirt, to the work of building, the work of planting, the work of creating, recreating, and organizing and reorganizing living places. The murder of George Floyd is not a sign of the crisis of policing. His murder points to the crisis that is policing. 
It is a crisis born of what I call, what others have called the built environments that we all inhabit, environments that have been structured by an unyielding racial geography, a geography through which flows all the realities of inequality, oppression, poverty, and of course, violence. And until, sisters and brothers, we begin to address the racial geography of the West and all the ways that geography is formed and solidified through the practices of real estate, city planning, development, land speculation and mapping and architecture, we will not begin to address the crisis that is policing. Equally important for us, we will not point Christians to a discipleship that actually matters to where they live. I appreciate the fact that so many people are now taking the racial condition seriously, now taking white supremacy seriously. Hallelujah. And some, as you all know, are doing so for the first time in their lives. But as long as people focus on change of attitude or change of behavior or even change of public policy without grounding the work of change, grounding the work of change in change of habitation, change of property relations with capital, change of housing practices, and change of the very structures of the built environment, we will not touch the roots of the racial condition or white supremacy. There is a twofold struggle that we are in the midst of, my friends. The first part of that struggle is over the moral character of place. I want you to remember this phrase, the moral character of place. Across this planet right now, the most desirable lands for living, for building, for planting, and even for extracting, yet stand in the legacies of being owned and or controlled by white people. Across this planet, in countries rich and poor, we have a human-made, a human-made housing crisis that grows worse by the day. And across this planet right now, we are drowning in our own trash. And as of yet, we Christians have not sufficiently connected the dots between these horrors and the many others that flow through them. Our struggle is against those principalities, and you all understand that word, those principalities that wish to rule the shape of place through capital and greed and power. So we have to fight like hell now about the shape of neighborhoods and towns and cities and about the goods and services that flow or do not flow through them and about the cost, the cost of living in place. The actual price of what it costs to live in a place and the moral price, the moral price that must be paid to ensure quality of living for everyone. The other struggle is against a Christianity yet wed to whiteness. This moment is exposing the pain of a necessary separation between a way of life that cultivates whiteness and a way of life that cultivates a deepening sense of belonging, 
a belonging that crosses borders and cultural boundaries. We are indeed in a struggle, my friends, over cultivation, over formation, and over growth. What does growth look like? The whiteness that we must all fight against is one that is buried deep in our Christianity and that seeks to turn us into becoming, all of us becoming, men and women, all of us becoming white, self-sufficient men who embody three demonic virtues, control, possession, and mastery. Control, possession, and mastery. The control of our environments down to the very shape of our neighborhoods, the possession of the things we need and want, and the mastery of our world to ensure our safety and the protection of our interests around the world. Now, how do we arrive at this twofold struggle? How do we arrive? How do we arrive at this, this moment? Well, the struggle formed at the intersection of three tragic developments, all of them growing out of Christianity. The first is the loss of our story, the loss of our story. You see, the story of our faith, as you all have a strong sense of, the story of our faith is the story of a radical inclusion, radical inclusion. We who are Christians, Enter the story of another people, Israel. Think especially of Acts 10, where Peter, there on that rooftop, waiting for something to eat, is confronted with the new that God is bringing in the world and to the world. That sheet is Lord, and the animals on that sheet, that any pious, faithful Jewish person would not touch, both because they have been shaped morally to not want those animals, and they've been shaped aesthetically in terms of their taste not to desire those animals. And that sheet full of animals is lowered to Peter, and God tells Peter, go ahead, you hungry? Eat that. Mm -hmm. A fight ensues, a struggle ensues, as you all know. And of course, the point of that is that we, we Gentiles, we're the ones on that sheet. We are the repulsive, horrible, unholy thing that God is telling Peter to join. And as that story opens up and Peter goes and is among Cornelius, this becomes the door through which we enter. This is the beginning of our story in the gospel. Here the Gentiles join. And in Acts 11, Peter goes back to his own and they are furious with him. Why did you go among the Gentiles? And especially, why did you break bread with them? Why did you eat with them? And of course, Peter's famous response is, because I want to do the will of God. No, his famous response is, I didn't want to do it. God made me do it. This is what God wanted. This is not what I wanted. But it's precisely at this space of Jew and Gentile being brought together in doing not what they want, but what God wants is the place out of which our faith comes. It is the radical inclusion. We enter the story of another people. We enter Israel's story. We were the guests entering their home. We were the ones drawing into their history, drawing into their way of life. And they, in turn, were opening themselves to life with Gentiles. Well, somewhere in the history of the church, and I've been trying to trace this out for many years, Somewhere in the history of the church, we Christians got tired of hearing and telling that story. <laughs> we decided that we were no longer the guests 
entering the story of another. We were the host in Israel. Jewish people were the guests. We were the ones they had to enter. We decided that we were the chosen. They were not. We knew God. They did not. We held the truth. They did not. We were the focus of God's attention. They were not. This Gentile pride, this Gentile hubris grows inside all sectors of the church, especially in the places we would now call Europe and in all the peoples we would now call European, and in all the nations that formed, and in the vision of nationalisms that they formed. This idea of being chosen by God. Now, here's what I want to say, and that so many people don't understand. People who study race and who study racism, who study white supremacy, who think about it in terms of sociology, thinks about it in terms of psychology, thinks about it in terms of politics. What most people don't understand is that this is the engine inside whiteness. This Gentile pride, this Gentile hubris, this idea that we are chosen by God, we are the focus of God, we are the one God has God's attention on first. This is what grew inside of what we would now call European Christianity, and it is the engine inside whiteness. And I'm going to come back to this later on and we talk about things I wanted to turn our attention to. But here is what we have to understand right off. Most Christians that I know, and probably you know as well, have never been introduced to this story. They've never been introduced to their story. They open the Bible and they think the Bible is about them. They have no idea that they were guests to someone else's party. And without that necessary humility, the kind of Christianity that forms in the new world, that forms whiteness, is precisely this. Which brings me to the second tragic development, which is the turning of the world, the entire world, into eternal students. Eternal students. You see, when the peoples we would now call European came to the new worlds, they believed that God had led them there for two reasons, both tied to cultivation, both reasons tied to cultivation. God in God's providence, they thought, brought them to the new world in order to cultivate the land, make proper use of the land, and to cultivate the people to bring them into salvation and thereby start them on a path to human maturity. To mature the land and to mature the people. To mature the land and to mature the people. To make the land productive and to make the people productive the very nature of their witness, that is these European Christians, the very nature of their witness as Christians was in their minds tied to being teachers. Their vision of mission was from the very beginning fundamentally distorted. Now, of course, we want to say that Missionaries did many good things, but those good things were inside a fundamentally distorted vision of themselves in the new world. Christians entered the new worlds imagining themselves as the teachers of the world and the world as perpetual learners, always in need of arriving at the truth, a truth that only Europeans fully understood. 
We are the inheritors of what I have called a pedagogical imperialism. Pedagogy simply means teaching, the theories of teaching. A pedagogical imperialism born of a distorted vision of Christian mission. We Christians in the new world presented a God who knows everything and needs to learn nothing. And thereby we performed and yet perform a Christianity that presents itself as knowing everything and needs to learn nothing. We have turned the educational life of a Christian on its head. The God we love delights in learning of God's own creation. And in Jesus, God learns. Jesus shows us God loving the learning. God has entered the time and places of the creature, moving and enjoying each moment of the creature's existence. Jesus learned and then he taught. The gospels give us a baby Jesus who was fully a child learning and growing as any child. And it's from the context of one who learns and grows that he then teaches. His teaching, however, was embedded in his learning. It is precisely this deeper reality of incarnation is the technical word of God becoming flesh. This deeper reality of incarnation in relation to making disciples that we Christians lost. We have, we have preferred to impose theological knowledge, denigrate indigenous knowledge, and present a God who cannot be found in the learning, but only in the teaching. It's as though God did not exist until Jesus opened his mouth and started teaching. That all those years as a baby, as a young man, as a, as a person, are inconsequential, just his mouth talking. Imperial Christianity gave birth to this pedagogical imperialism, as I'm calling it, which turned the entire world outside the colonial West, outside the West, into perpetual students and those in the Western world as eternal teachers. This tragic development quickly reached beyond Christianity and became a fundamental characteristic of whiteness. What is that? The unrelenting desire, the unrelenting desire to tell people how best to live, how best to use their land, how best to mature uh, in body and mind. And the key here, the key here is that that work was never as a conversation about how best to live, how blessed to live on the land, how best to understand maturity. It was always as instruction, never a conversation. Mm. The third tragic development was the separation of people from the land and the distorting of their identities. And this is crucial. You're going to hold all these together now, sisters and brothers. When Europeans came to the New World, they were stunned by two things. The expansiveness, the beauty, and the diversity of the environments. And the expansiveness and diversity of the peoples. You have to get your mind around what it must have been like for people who they had have, they have lived their entire life in, say, a 75-mile radius, that entire life in a 75-mile radius, all of a sudden to come to the new world and to stand, to stand in the, the um, you know, to stand in a place like Peru and see the beauty of the mountains or to stand in a place like Virginia, before it became Virginia and West Virginia, to see the expanse of mountains and the expanse of hills and ranges. The first time one saw the Rockies or the California coast, to see all this expanse of beauty, to see the, 
the mind-boggling diversity of these animals, animals that you never even imagined existed, and how, how absolute overwhelmed they were at the opening to them of a world that they barely had imagined. Now, in response to what was absolutely overwhelming for them, they wanted to do two things. Never forget this. They wanted to do two things. They wanted to understand it, and they wanted to own it. <laughs> they wanted to understand it, and they wanted to own it. When you tie those two things together, horror results. Almost every horror that they created, that they gave life to, lies between those two poles, trying to understand and trying to own. And what holds those two things together? One word, greed. Greed, greed is the energy that drives so much of the reality of whiteness, greed. Europeans came to the new world with incredible, unprecedented power. The power to take and the power to describe. The power to take and the power to describe. Remember what I said, to understand a thing and to own a thing. The power to take and the power to describe. So they took the land and started describing the people by comparison to themselves. That's the simplest way to say that. Describing the people by comparison to themselves. And in that comparative work, they placed all of humanity on a scale, on a scale between black and white. Between black and white. White at the high end of everything. Everything good, everything true, everything beautiful, everything moral, everything mature, everything godly, and black at the opposite end. Now, what most people don't understand when we talk about the form, the, the emergence of race, we aren't just talking about people of European descent and people of African descent. We are talking about a scale that emerges that the whole world can be placed inside of in terms of how far it will move toward the good end and away from the bad end. That's what we're talking about. And what these Europeans did in their comparative work is not only did they describe everyone, but they refused, they refused to accept or allow indigenous peoples anywhere in the world to define themselves, to articulate themselves, to tell their own story. They refused to allow them to do that. The most fundamental way they refused to allow them self-definition and self-description and ultimately self-determination Self-definition, self-description, self-determination was by denying their connection to the land and the animals. All indigenous peoples all over the world that they were entering understood themselves in relation to their land and their animals their ways of life, their stories, their hopes, their dreams, their ways of growing and becoming were all tied to the land and the land was alive, interacting with them. And the animals were their kin, part of their family and they part of the animal family. But for the Europeans, especially the European Christians, all of that was nonsense, primitive, even demonic. The Europeans, believing that God had sent them there to cultivate the new world, saw the land as what it was, in their minds, private property to be bought, sold, and used in any way the owner saw fit. So for Europeans, you carried 
your identity completely on your body. And, your, and that identity could be gauged between the poles of white and black. Not the land. The land was private property. Whatever connection you have to the land is simply by choice, by volition, by sentiment. Not anything more serious than that. Now, here's my point. This is how race comes into existence. This is how race comes into existence. By stripping people of their connection to the land, stripping people's identity from the land, and forcing them, I do mean forcing, forcing them to see their identities as established by their racial body, not by the land, because they're taking the land. So race, and private property are two sides of the same coin. They come to exist through the other. They emerge together in the modern world, race and private property. Because in order to take people and summarize them inside of a racial category, you take them from the land that is fundamental to their self-definition their self-understanding, and the way they see the world. So the taking, fragmenting, manipulating, and controlling of the land becomes the most decisive factor, the most decisive thing that shapes the new world, that shapes our world. Everything comes back to the land. Every aspect of the generation of wealth and power comes back to the land. And we all live, sisters and brothers, right now in the aftermath of this racial geography, where the control of the land, where the control of the land is the energy that sustains racial identity, racism, and white supremacy. So what is whiteness? given what I've been saying. Whiteness is a way of being in the world that seeks to realize its control, mastery, and possession of the world in ways that mark thinking and living in place. Let me say that again. Whiteness is a way of being in the world that seeks to realize its control, its mastery, and its possession of its world in ways that mark thinking and living in place. Now, in order to understand what I'm saying, you must forget about whiteness as phenotype, as bodily characteristic, or even as European heritage, and see it for what it is a sick vision of maturity, a sick vision of becoming, a vision of reaching toward and arriving at a maturity that can judge the whole world by how well it has achieved mastery of its world, control of its land, and possession of its resources, and a freedom, a freedom to live unencumbered by other people, a mastery, if you will, a freedom to live unencumbered by other people. Sound familiar? Sound like somebody you know in the White House? You don't have to be of European descent, however, to want to be white or to become white or to enact whiteness. Whiteness is a desired becoming. And whiteness, in order to be established, this is what this is the last thing I'm going to say that's crucial about this. Whiteness, in order to be established, must be established on the ground. It must be established geographically. It has to have place in order to enact and refresh and regenerate itself. So with, with that a little bit of history summarized, here are a few things I would like for us, certainly, as we move forward in these, this crucial moment, 
to turn our attention toward. And there are many others, but th these will give us some categories to uh, move into our discussion. First, for those of us who are Christian, we have to start telling the real story of our faith. The real story of Gentile inclusion, the real story of entering the story of another people, and the necessary humility that should be at the heart of our Christianity. I was at a church a while back. I won't tell you where it is because you might figure it out. But I, I told the story I told earlier about um, based in the book of Acts. And then I said to them, you know, if we were back in the time of Jesus, and if, if we Gentiles walked up to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, how you doing? We're here for you. Jesus would look at us, and then he would turn his back and keep on talking to the people he came for, the people of Israel. And when I said that, some of the people in the congregation, they looked at me with such horror and shock and anger, like, how dare I say something like that? Because to their minds, I, I was describing Jesus as not belonging to them. And of course, the truth is, Jesus does not belong to us. We belong to him. And the only way the Gentile was able to get Jesus' attention was by coming around the front, positioning himself or herself right in front of Jesus and saying, Lord, I know I'm not a part of your people, but I want, I need what you have. Now, of course, what I just said still sounds strange to so many people. But unless we take that lens to the Bible, we're going to read the Bible poorly. We're going to imagine that this is our book, just our book. And we will not get a sense of what the story costs. It costs us entering into the lives of others. And then making entering into the lives of others a way of life. That's the point. It wasn't just a one-time entering into Israel. And then, okay, now we're in, we're good. It's a way of life of always in humility, entering into, of learning. And from learning, the witnessing. So the first thing is to, I would love for, for churches, especially at this moment, in order to help people understand whiteness and not simply talk about it sociologically or psychologically or in terms of public policy, but to talk about it theologically, you need to bring people back to its historical rootage, its historical foundations in Gentile pride. That will be very important because if you don't start there, you won't address the problem. The second thing, second place I want us to turn our attention to, and I've said this many times, but I always want to come back to it, is that we need to learn in profound, clear detail the history of place. Every city in this country, in the United States of America, needs the equivalent of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that unlocks the full history of how a city and how a community came to be the full history of the violence, the moving, the segregation, the redlining, um, the keeping out, the allowing in, the full history of how a place has come to be. Because based on that history, you start to then understand how a place continues to work. You see, every city in this country is shaped inside a racial geography that puts into the built environment itself the structures of harm and disadvantage and oppression and inequality. No one has to say it. No one has to walk around with a bat. It's built into the very way the neighborhood, the community is structured. But you can't get to that unless you know the history of how it came to be. That's really important. So many people, so many churches are utterly ignorant of the history of their places. And then the third place I would love for us to turn our attention toward, and I've said this earlier, so I'm coming back to something I said at the very beginning. We have to struggle. We have to struggle, sisters and brothers. We have to struggle for life. Struggle for life 
in the built environment of our communities and our cities. We have to struggle. Every community in this country is controlled in fundamental ways by a small group of people, the people who decide what will be built and what won't be built, that will decide what zoning policies come into play, that will decide the price of houses. And all those, I'm, I'm don't want to demonize anybody, but the light needs to be cast on all real estate operations, on all uh, development operations, land development operations, on all architectural work, on all planning, on all of it. As I've said many times, and this is the one thing I want you never to forget, please don't forget what I'm about to say, because this is crucial at this moment. All policing practice, all policing practice follows zoning policy. All policing practice follows zoning policy. And you cannot address policing practice until you get at zoning policy because zoning policy tells police how they will act and where they will act. And we have to bring a moral compass to zoning policy before we can bring a moral compass to policing practice. So, for example, this is just a suggestion. It ought to be a matter of policy and law that if a person is a police officer, they must live in the community they police. They cannot drive in from the suburbs to the city to police. And if anybody is an official who's making decisions on how a place is going to be, they have to be known by everybody in that place. Every land developer, every real estate, everyone needs to see what they do out in the open. I have to forgive me, I'm starting to be sound a little preachy, so please forgive me. So um, the last thing I want to say, and then I want to open it up for conversation, is in this crucial moment, I hope you're doing two things. I hope you're all taking care of yourself. And I say that especially for the ministers listening. I know this is an incredibly difficult time. Many of you can't get to your people. And so the struggle and the pain is real. And for so many people who are living, they're not even paycheck to paycheck. They're living, they're living hand to mouth. I hope you are taking care of yourself as best you can. The second thing that I want to say there is I hope you are remaining hopeful. I remain hopeful in the midst of this struggle because I understand hope to be a discipline, a discipline granted to us by God who created us out of nothing. We know that because all that exists was created out of nothing, that nothing is eternal, nothing is permanent, nothing is unchangeable except God. So when it comes to the built environment, when it comes to our financial systems, when it comes to the racial geography that surrounds us and that nurtures both the built environment and our financial systems, we know that we are up against the illusion of permanence, the illusion of permanence. Things can be changed. Even the things that many people think cannot, things can be changed. This is what our hope means in this moment. We work to change what others think impossible. All right, thank you very much. Let's open it up for some questions and some comments. Uh, and I want to just say to everybody, since this question, since this question and comments, please be brief. Please be brief with your question and your comment. Uh, Willie, we're going to manage the questions through me. Folks are posting them in the chat. I have trouble being brief, but I'll do my best. Um, there's a, one of the questions begins to uh, push into that first thing you said we hope we discuss, and uh, that is uh, as we think about Jesus um, growth and uh, his teaching as well. Uh, 
the Gospels show that he grew in his thinking about inclusion of Gentiles. Had this changed during the time of his ministry leading up to his passion, his crucifixion? Um, where, where do we get um, that opening? Uh, is, there a, is there anything before Peter and Cornelius, I guess? Great question. Well, here's what we know. We were a shock. Uh, there is a place in the New Testament where it says that Jesus was in shock and awe. It's the place that it's most often where he says he's in shock and awe. He's in shock and awe that we Gentiles took him seriously. He's in shock and awe that we Gentiles actually wanted him. Why? Because like his people, he was formed inside the hostility between Jew and Gentile. Like his people, he was formed imagining Gentiles as his enemies, those who would kill him without, without hesitating, especially, you know, Roman soldiers. They would kill. But here, and let's think of one story in particular, the centurion, remember that? The centurion... He showed faith, and Jesus was stunned, the Bible says, by his faith. So what we learn in the Gospels is that Jesus learns that the Gentiles actually have faith. He learns. He is stunned. And unless we want to take his humanity from him and, and, and say, well, he was just pretending— he wasn't pretending. <laughs> he was surprised. We were the surprise that God had been preparing. The Spirit of God was moving in and among us. Now, we could say that the surprise that Jesus, that Jesus experienced, he then shared with his disciples. So let's think of that other famous story, the so-called Canaanite woman. That's in the Gospels. Here, another Gentile acts like a child of Israel and claims what a child of Israel is offered, and that is faith in this Jesus. And now remember, the, the, the key in that story is the disciples' behavior. The disciples say to Jesus, Lord, send this woman away. So we're sick of this woman. We don't care if her child is, is tormented and about to die. We don't care. She's a Gentile. Send her away. And Jesus, Jesus ignores his own disciples. He ignores his own disciples. And by the way, you all, you all remember that. Well, most of us read that passage. What do you think we see ourselves in that passage? We see ourselves standing with Jesus and the disciples. Look at her this woman. I said, Lord, what are we going to do with this moment? <laughs> when in point of fact, in the passage, guess where we are? We're that woman. And Jesus is getting his disciples to not do the violence against the woman that they want. Send her away. Right? So this is where we start to see the opening of the reality of faith in which Gentiles offer themselves in the presence of their enemies to Jesus. You see, it's this tension. It's this beautiful place of tension where you have Jews and Gentiles, both wanting to try to get to Jesus, neither one wanting to be with each other, but because they want to get to Jesus, they are forced to be together. They are forced to be together to get to Jesus. And that is the reality out of which our faith is born. It's born in a relationship that God wants that we don't want. But once we enter it, we come to understand that this is indeed what we want. Now, my point is, and just not to, not to uh, 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 beat it this too long, but my point here is that the Christianity we have been shaped in, has been denied that story. Mm -hmm. So this is why whiteness is such an insidious problem because it, it represents a distorted 
reality of the gospel. Yeah. And so many uh, people who talk about race don't understand that. So they, they're thinking, well, what, 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 whiteness is about power. Whiteness is about privilege. Yes, that, all that's true. All that's true. But this is the spiritual root of it. And if you can't get to the spiritual root of something, you're not going, it's like a weed that you're just pulling off the top of it. It's going to, you know, after a good rain, it's going to come right back up. Mm -hmm. Because you, you're not touching the root of it. You got to get to the root. The root. The root is a horrific way of understanding how one is loved by God. How one is seen by God, accepted by God, noticed by God, attended by God. I'm sorry, Mike, I'm going on. Go ahead, your next question. Hey, the, uh, the second point you made, and there's several questions related to it, and let me kind of um, combine them together where you said uh, we need to reimagine our relationship to place. And uh, thank you so much for your comments on that first one, which as much as anything tells us we have to learn to read the Bible all over again. Right. Yeah. Right. The, the questions that came uh, about how is it as white church leaders, uh, particularly trying to dismantle white supremacy, how do we, think about relinquishing control of land? How do we think about deconstructing these white ideals of control, possession, and mastery? How do practices uh, like baptism and communion inform this new imagination? How is the church able to change is, I think, what these questions are getting at. Mm -hmm. And I want to say again, I, it's, I, it's, it's easy to feel overwhelmed as you think about this, because this is the, this is the concealed upon which we build our lives. And what I'm trying to do is to take what's been concealed and bring it to the surface. So how do we, how does a church begin? The first thing a church has to do is to figure out the history. Mm -hmm. You know, so if, if a church is in a, in a, and I used to say, but people used to tell me to stop saying this, but you know, a church needs to know what's around it in a five-mile radius. Pastoral leadership needs to know that. But a church needs to know what's around it in a five-mile radius. And it needs to know the history, the specific history of that five-mile five mile radius. And then to work out to the, the wider reality of the neighborhood, to work out to the wider reality of the city. Now, here's the thing, Brother Mike, and, I, and this is very important for everybody to understand. If you learn the depth of the history, you are already going to have 80% of what you need to figure out what you can do and should do. You're going to already know that. If you, if, if you find out that this particular area has always been the area where Black people and Lat Latinx people were forced to live, and these were the areas that white people lived, and this is the way, and this is the way the money works. This is the way services work. This is the way um, the neighborhood works. You already have the basis of figuring out what you can do, right? You already, so something as simple, as I've said this before, something as simple, and I know many of you do this in Durham, but I've gone to many places that this is, this is so, such new information. They're like, well, something as simple as going to those monthly meetings of the city council where the decisions are being made about uh, price points for homes, sidewalks, bus routes. If Christians ought to pack those meetings out, pack them out. They ought to be full of us. And we ought, and what we ought to, here's what we ought to be saying. Okay, who are the developers? Who has the money? Where is the money coming from to build that over there? Who is it? Where did they get their money? And who has given them permission? We didn't vote on that. How did that happen? It's, 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 it's something as simple as making sure you understand how place works. As you all know, in Durham, downtown Durham has been gentrified. The churches in Durham ought to know down to the specific reality. Who owns every new building? Where did that money come from? How, how, are, the, how are those price, how are those condos and buildings priced? Who made those decisions? Why were they made? How can we challenge them? These are the things that you have to do first to address whiteness. 
This is how you address whiteness. You don't address whiteness first by saying, well, how do I feel about black people? No, you address whiteness first by understanding how place works, right? That's the first thing, right? Now, if you know the history and then you know how place works, then you, you pray intelligently, you plan intelligently once you know that about what you can and should do as a church, right? But to, to, to try to plan, to try to pray without any sense of that means that you're going you're gonna to wind up doing really internal, navel-gazing kind of discipleship. Lord, I really, want, I really want things to get better in Durham. I really want things to get better in this country about race. I really do want people to love each other. But love means you attend to place, right? So let me give you an example. So in so many communities, and I know it's kids in Durham because I used to live in Durham, the, the bus routes, where do the buses run? How often do they run? Sidewalks, where are the sidewalks? Where are sidewalks not being built? Who is making those decisions, right? Um, where, where is there recycle? Where is there not recycle? Where, where is trash being put? Where is it not being put? How, who decides where, where, how the police routes, where the police go when they patrol? Who's there? Who's in the room? Who's making those decisions? Christians ought to be involved. We ought to be constantly present in every decision that has to do with our feet, our hands, our lives in the dirt, on the ground. So that's where, that's where you want to start. It, it can be overwhelming if you start to try to think about race in the abstract. It becomes very straightforward when you start to think about race as a geographic reality. This is what I've been trying to say. Race is a matter of geography, sisters and brothers. It's a matter of geography first. Segregation is not just a habit of mind. Segregation is a habit of building life. And you have to keep that in mind. The habit of mind begins with the habit of building life. And as long, and here's the, here's the way segregation works so powerfully. I don't, have to, I don't have to move black people or move Latinx people you know, into a community and, and, and sequester them, though that's still happening. All I have to do is quietly put as the starting price for this house or this condo at $600,000. I know in my mind, I know in what I'm doing that I'm already going to structure something racially by doing that. Now, what do I mean by that? It's not just a matter that I'm keeping out a vast majority of people of color, but I'm only letting in a certain kind of person of color who strictly understands that they are a controlled body in this expensive place. I'm, I'm allowing in the kind of person of color who's going to be obsessed with keeping their lawn perfect, who's going to be obsessed with keeping their house looking perfect, who's going to be obsessed with looking right because they know they're in this neighborhood. That is, I'm going to control them without ever saying I'm controlling you. That is what happens when you are not in the room and they've said, well, we're going to start these condos at $700,000. That, that, those very words are already a work of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. and, and unless you understand this, then whatever we're going to talk about in terms of behavior and attitude and public policy is going to miss the point. People will, people will let you pray all day about racism <laughs> as long as you don't have anything to say about price points of a real estate uh, operation. You pray all day. As long as I get to decide the shape of the house, the direction of the bus routes, whether there'll be sidewalks, you know, how much they'll cost. Mm -hmm. As long as I can decide that, I'm going to make racism is going to stay, white supremacy is going to stay in place forever. I am surrounded all the time, sisters and brothers, with men and women who have been raised in highly controlled, protected white spaces. 
high school, uh, uh, K through 12, uh, college, graduate school, whatever, they've been in highly controlled spaces and then they wind up in positions of power. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they're very bright, intelligent people who, because they have been in these fabricated white cocoons, carry inside their brilliance and their intelligence deeply sick and stupid ways of thinking about people of color. And when you try to talk to them, they're, they're very sad about it. And they don't know why they're so sad about it because they, they, in their hearts, they want to be good people. But what they don't understand, they have been structured inside a world that's formed them this way. And all the teachers who tried to have them read, you know, wonderful things by black authors and so forth and so on, all that good stuff. Because they were shaped inside erasure geography, it thwarted the work that they were trying to do to try to open them up. Because where I live shapes how I live and how I live shapes how I want to live, right? So, so it's, I'm no Mike. I'm going on too long. You forgive me if I'm, I'm just getting too excited about this. But this is really important for us to understand. We're not. My worry about this moment is that, as you all know, we're in a moment that's it's not going to last. Many people are going to get tired of feeling guilty about George Floyd. Very so. Mm-hmm. They're tired of feeling guilty about being white. I'm, I'm going to give it about another three months, and then we're going to get the backlash especially if Trump is out the White House, we're going to get the backlash. We're already starting to see it. And and once the backlash hits, we're going to be right back in the same mess. Because why? Because we're not touching at the roots of the problem. We have to get to the roots of the problem. And we can't get there without this. All right. We're uh, close to ending. There's a group of questions that, um, again, sort of follow this direction of uh, your statement about a moral compass to zoning policy. One sort of turns that in the direction of how that affects health outcomes uh, in this era of the the COVID-19 virus. And, um, And the other is from a Black liberation practitioners' perspective: How do we protect ourselves and educate our people uh, for this kind of change? If you can give us about five minutes at the most in this response, and then we'll wrap up. Well, let me let me start with the protection part because this is really crucial for all of us. <clears throat> so um, we have to read. We have to recommit um, ourselves to the practices of our ancestors who understood the importance of being out in the dirt. Many of you are gardening now, that's great. Um, But I think what's also important for us, especially those of us who are people of faith, we have to recommit ourselves to um, touching the earth, finding our our way outside. And given given the way the pandemic is working, and given you know the the uh, the weather patterns we have, it's a good time to mm-hmm. practice social distancing by sitting with sisters and brothers out in the open, close to the dirt, praying together, talking together, and restoring your senses. I I I have a, some wonderful. I, I as I said in my introduction, you know I, I live not far from Stone, um, um, Sleeping Giant Mountain, and I'm nestled up against uh, a hill of the mountain, so I stare out at trees all day, and I. Have, I have many bird feeders and I'm listening to birds every day. It's so important to me. And I'm listening, watching the deer and watching the squirrels eat all my, eat all my pears and eat all my bird seed. But I, I, I am out here enjoying as much as I can being outside. And what's so important about that, and, and this is, I, I don't want to in any way sound flippant because this is really crucial. People of color, especially black folks, one of the ways we survive in every place was going sticking our hands in the dirt. We and for two reasons. The one we grew food. I grew. I'm the youngest of eleven, and and my daddy's salary could not feed us all. What fed us was was that chain of gardens, backyard gardens that ran 
all the way up the street in the backyard where folks grew their food and exchanged food. And I ate many a meal based on what mama and my Aunt Martha, everybody else grew in their gardens. And so gardening was a way to sustain us through that informal trade economy, that, that trade economy that has been so much a part of so many communities. And in fact, we, we, you know, to have that is a crucial thing. But the other thing about that, my mom and my dad, they went out in the garden as a way, and they, they had chairs and they would sit out in the middle of their garden. And they would sit there with, with, with those old, those old um, iron chairs that the, the seat sat close to the ground. They would sit out there, put their hands, just lay their hands in the soil as a way to refresh themselves, revive themselves. And so we, we all need to remember the importance of being near the land and on the dirt and use that as a basis for rethinking our connection to one another. That's, that's a crucial matter. Now, of course, here's, here's the thing that we're all facing, sisters and brothers. This pandemic has made it clear to all of us that we need each other. We are all so starved of touch. Yes. And my hope and prayer for us is that we can, when, whenever there's an opportunity to move forward from this horrific moment, not lose sight of this need. Never forget what it feels like to need touch. To let that school us in this moment in the kinds of community we want to be, where we, we hold again touch as sacred. We hold again each other's needs, each other's longings, each other's hopes as sacred. And we build toward each other in new ways. I think this is what's gonna be crucial for us in this moment. We are, not, we are not going to be able to move forward if we think that we are going to go back to what we were and who we were yes. in this country. We're only going to move forward if we seize this moment as an opportunity to rethink how we live in place. All right, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. The Who Is My Neighbor podcast is a production of Durham Cares, a nonprofit that mobilizes Durham residents to love their neighbors. Learn more at www.durhamcares.org. Be blessed.